0: Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc or you can visit us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 9, 15 and 11 a.m. Uh, last week we kicked off uh, the series that we're calling Unwrapped and we began kind of thinking about what is really one of the most central acts of the Christmas season and that is the exchanging of gifts. And so I thought it'd be really cool just to kind of identify and label ourselves in the house today because I know you all came to label yourself in front of everybody. Um, and so there's really when it comes to unwrapping presents, I began to think about it this week, there's really kind of two categories, two crowds when it comes to unwrapping gifts. And so I'm going to ask you just to identify which crowd you're in in just a second and you're like, I don't even know the crowds. Here's the crowds. One crowd is Uh, there's the Rippers, all right? And the other crowd is there's the Savers. That's just what we're going to call them, the Rippers and the Savers. So let me define them, and then I'll let you identify yourself within them. Some of you are working ahead of me. All right, stay with me. Don't get too far ahead. Okay, the Rippers, if you will, the Rippers are those individuals who really have no regard, all right, for the beautiful wrapping job that has been done on the present that they have been given. Like, no value placed in the time and energy spent cutting the present, all right, all of the hundreds of pieces of tape that have been used on that individual gift all right they really only have one objective and that is just to figure out what's in the gift for me all right that's kind of the definition of a ripper and if we're really honest as I thought about it this week like if you if you're a ripper you should really offer a warning to those individuals around you before you dig in especially those at arm's length because they're kind of in a hazardous zone there like they could be hit by an elbow or a bow uh, coming off of the gift uh, because a ripper man is just all about it so anybody just willing to admit before God and everyone like you're a ripper in the house, okay? Like, awesome, there's some people, some of you are slowly, you're like, oh, are that, okay, I could be that too. Um, the, on the other side, like a completely contrary to the ripper is the saver, right? Amen, amen to all the savers. So on the other side of things, the saver, uh, man, they have full regard for the value and the time that has been invested in putting this gift together. Like, they find great value in that. They, they love the beauty of the paper, like they're all about them, so much so that they strategically unwrap the present in such a way that you could actually use the same paper to wrap another present in, all right, anybody a saver in the house, like you're a saver, all right, that's what I'm talking about, you're the people that like a while ago when you pulled in, you were backing in and out of your parking lot about three spot three times just to get it straight, weren't you, okay, there's medicine, medicine for you, therapy, all that good stuff, it's awesome. No, man, we, you know, we all approach the unwrapping process in different ways. Nothing wrong with that. man. I think it's awesome that we can use um, this time of year just to express our feelings and our, our love for each other by giving gifts. I think it's a good thing. Um, but last week I kind of proposed to you a question or a scenario, if you will. And it was this, what if, then what if Christmas came and the presents were wrapped and they had the tags and they were placed under the tree and everything was perfect. And we went to all the parties and we sang all the songs. and We did all the Christmas stuff and we never unwrapped the presents. Like like what if that happened? Now that would be that would be quite awkward, all right? We agreed last week that would be the most unusual of Christmases to have the gifts, tags, everything and not unwrap them. But here's what we began to think about last week that really, I think, many times, and perhaps we could be even in danger this year, 2016, of stepping into the holiday season. Man, we step in and we do, we do all of the Christmas stuff, right? We come and we sing the Christmas songs, and like we go to the live nativity, and we see the Christmas programs, and we, we hear the Christmas messages, and we listen to the music, and we buy all the presents, and we do all of the Christmas celebration stuff, and sometimes we could still be in danger of never fully unwrapping the gift of what Christmas was intended to be. We can encounter the most anticipated time of the whole year for many people, and never fully unpack it for what God intended for it to be. So over these few weeks together, we're in a series that we're calling Unwrapped, where we're saying, hey, we're going to discover the gift of Christmas. And so the goal in these few weeks is really pretty simple. We're just looking at passages of God's Word that kind of surround the Christmas story, and we're kind of unwrapping or unpacking them, if you will, in a way maybe that you never have before. So love for you to track along with me. Go to Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 1. We were in Matthew 1 last week. Um, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a hard copy or digital copy of scripture, we'll put the verses behind me just for you to track along. And I'll be reading from the NIV um, version today. Uh, But love for you to open up whatever uh, version that God has given you. Um, Hey, last week we also talked about this. And so I want to kind of rehash this. If you missed last week, we said when we look at the Christmas story, there are really two different approaches that we can take. Alright, so here's approach number one. Approach number one is that we could look at the stories of the Chris, the characters of the Christmas story, be it Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, whoever you want to say, and we could see their response to the situations they were in, to what God was doing, how they were obedient, how they sacrificed, they walked in faith, some of them, them had fear. We could look at all of that and then we could allow their actions to inspire us. And I don't know that that would be totally wrong, but that's one approach that we could take. However, there's a second approach that we began talking about last week. And the second approach is that we could look at the Christmas story, not just for the surface level of how the characters and the situations played themselves out, but we could look even deeper. to see the story and the narrative that I believe God was writing. And yes, he used characters, and yes, he used situations, but yet he was writing a much deeper story. He was giving a much grander gift, if you will. And so my hope in these few weeks together is to kind of dig deep into the the passages around the Christmas story to see what gift of eternal hope that God was offering to us. And last week, if you were here, um, we began by Matthew chapter one, and we kind of looked at the events surrounding Joseph's life. Some of you um, were here and were a part of that. And we At Joseph's response, but more than that, we looked at what God was doing, and we begin to see some different things. And so, if you missed last week, here's the highlights of it first thing that we saw was just the foundational uh, need for us to even have the gift of Christmas. Now, I think we can all agree, like God gave us Jesus. That's the greatest gift. All right. But what was God doing in that? And and so last week we said the foundational need for us is that we, all right, God gave us Jesus as a savior. Messiah means savior because we were a people in need of saving. And and I got really personal with you last week. And I told you about how I got locked in an airplane bathroom, 30,000 feet in there. And you laughed at me. All right. And then I love the fact that many of you, not just some of you, many of you came to me and you told me what you would have done 30,000 feet up in the air in a bathroom, all right? And here's what I say to you, you were not there, okay? I was there. You were not there. I endured that on your behalf so that I could illustrate right, the fact that we are a people in need of saving. But, but that was the foundation of last week, that I mean, we, we all are a people in need of saving. And therefore, God gives us a savior. And then we started unwrapping the present and we saw that even in the chaos, God can bring about redemption. And even in the darkest, most broken parts of your life, God can bring hope. He can bring restoration. And he shows that in the story. Uh, We saw that God is fully faithful to his word, that he can be trusted. Um, And then the final piece last week was really, really good, was that the sovereign and holy God, Emmanuel, the sovereign and holy God, he became the personal and present God. And that he inserted himself into the story. And Jesus, ultimately, he was not just hope, but he was hope with flesh on he became one of us. And so today we're going to jump over to another character, and that is the character of Mary. And just to look at some of the events surrounding her. Again, not Mary's response, but more of what Jesus uh, was, ha- was happening with Jesus and what God was doing in Luke 1. So go Luke 1, and we're going to pick up about halfway through the chapter um, in verse 26. It says in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. Now the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. So Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God and you will conceive and give birth to a son we're going to just stop right there for a moment. And so here we begin to see kind of the beginning of Mary's story within the overall Christmas story. And much like Joseph last week, the angel visits Mary and delivers like this unexplainable, incomprehensible news that Mary as a teenage virgin is now pregnant and is going to give birth to a baby. All right. And ladies, I think we can all kind of just agree. You can agree with me. It's one thing to get the news that you're pregnant. Like, Ooh, that's awesome. Like it's another thing to get the news that you're pregnant, and God is the daddy, all right? Sell that one to mama, okay? But that's the hand that Mary is dealt. Like, that's the situation she finds herself in. Mother to the Savior of the world. And here, I think, we begin to see just a little bit of the first part of this gift today of Christmas, of what God was doing so much deeper, and that is that God often uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. God often uses the unlikely people and places to accomplish His purposes. And throughout Scripture, if you have read God's Word much at all, over and over you see that God uses the unexplainable, unlikely people and places and circumstances to accomplish His purposes. So let's kind of look at some highlights. In Genesis, we see the story of Abraham, who was, what, 100 years old before God made him the father of Isaac, who would become the father of the nation of Israel. In Exodus, we see a guy named Moses who had a serious stuttering issue, yet God said, That's the guy that I want to be the leader for thousands of Israelites to lead them out of slavery. And God chose Moses later in the old Testament. Who does God choose? He chooses Jonah. Who did what? Who ran from God, finds himself in the belly of a fish. And God's like, Oh, that's one of my guys. I want to use him. God in the new Testament chooses Matthew. who is what? A tax collector. And he stole and cheated people for a living. And God said, that's going to be one of my closest followers. And I'm going to use him to write one of the most powerful and influential books in God's word. And then we see not only people, but we also see circumstances. In other places in Scripture, God chooses uh, to feed a hungry crowd with what? A little boy's lunch of fish and bread. God chooses to put three of his followers in a fiery furnace so that he might get glory in that. God allows a a military leader in Joshua to declare that the sun would stand still, and it does. And then we all know the story of God using a shepherd boy with a slingshot and some rocks to take on a nine-foot giant. I mean, throughout scripture, we go on and on all day. God chooses to use the unlikely people and places and circumstances of life, the unexplainable to accomplish his purposes. And here in this moment of Luke 1, like God's ordaining a simple teenage virgin to become the mother of God's son, the savior of the world. And I would argue with you, like if we're the writers of the script of eternity and like how the savior of the world, the son of God is going to come into the picture. That's not how we're writing the story. But God says, that's perfect. That's exactly the way that I want to use an unlikely and an unexplainable situation to accomplish my purpose. I think in the New Testament, Paul kind of writes some, some truth to the church at Corinth that maybe gives us a little insight into this idea and this thought process of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. This is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that... No one may boast before him. And Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, who was a very unlikely people. And he says, guess what? God loves. He specializes in using the lowly, the weak, the foolish things to accomplish his purposes. Why? So that no one can boast in themselves, but so that God might get ultimate glory. You know, we as people, if you think about it, like we're really quick to either take credit or to try to explain something, aren't we? We're really quick. Well, why'd this happen? Well, I don't know. I'm thinking this is what went down. Or, hey, who did that? Well, I did that. We're really quick to take credit or to explain something. And here what Scripture, I think, is pointing us to, that God chooses avenues. He chooses situations. He chooses people that are so unlikely that we have no explanation, that we can't take credit, so that we are only left to boast in God so that he would get glory for accomplishing his purposes in us and through us. And I don't believe this is just a characteristic of God like in the Bible time, but I believe God still today is into using the unexplainable and the unlikely situations and circumstances of our life so that he might accomplish his his purposes in us and through us. Um, one of my friends right now, one of my close friends is uh, quite a few decades ahead of me in age. And uh, man, over the last year, he's faced a lot of different just uh, health struggles. And, and so his health has begun to decline. His physical abilities have begun to decline. And every time we have a conversation, every time it comes up, man, hey, how you feeling? How, how you doing? He, it, it always works itself into the conversation. He always inserts, man, I, I, don't, I don't fully know why this is happening, but I know that God is trying to use this to teach me something. Man, I have no doubt that God has a purpose in this season that he's trying to accomplish in me. And I think the hope of this unlikely news delivered to Mary is that the same God who delivered this unlikely news can accomplish his purposes in the unlikely situations of your life as well. And for us, it seems like a financial fallout, a health scare, a difficult work environment, struggle with our family, you name it. But maybe God looks at it as the prime opportunity where we are most teachable, and He can begin to accomplish His purposes in us and through us if we'll choose to listen to Him. So I ask you the question for you to consider. I wonder what might be a situation or circumstance in your life right now that maybe is not understandable to you, it's not in your logic, it's certainly not in your plans, but maybe God can use the most unlikely of situations to accomplish his purpose in you and through you. And then I would challenge you in light of what we see and read here, I would challenge you to change your attitude. Rather from an attitude of questioning or doubt, what if you flip that into an attitude of trust? And then on top of that, you begin to go, God, I'm not all knowing like you are, but would you begin to reveal to me the deeper purposes that you're trying to accomplish in me? I love the verses from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 that we all often quote. This is what Scripture says to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not some, not a little bit, not the section, not when it makes sense, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. Change your mindset to an attitude of trust and lean not on your own understanding. Don't try to manipulate it in your way, but in all your ways, submit to him. And he, God, the sovereign God, will make your paths straight. I think the first part of the gift of Christmas is really important and really good for us today is that God often uses those unlikely places and situations of our life to bring him glory and work according to his purposes. We go back to our passage and let's read verse 31. We'll kind of add on the part we left off. It says, you will conceive and you're going to give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus. Now, here the angel gives specific instructions on the name to this baby that, Jesus, that Mary is carrying. And if you remember last week, part one, Matthew one, angel comes to Joseph. And what does the angel say to Joseph? Hey, Joseph, guess what? Mary's pregnant and there's going to be a baby. And here's what you should name him: Jesus. And so this message has been delivered that this baby is to have a specific name. And in verse 31, I, th- I think it goes even deeper than that. And here's the second part of the gift. God wasn't giving a name, but God was giving a promise. God wasn't giving a name, but he was giving a promise. Um, Just out of curiosity, we got any Bank Plus employees in the house? Like you do anything at Bank Plus? Nobody at least willing to admit you work for them? You used to work for them? Just kidding. Okay. And so like, as I'm thinking about how to just kind of quantify this truth in words this week, I thought about the slogan of Bank Plus. Anybody know the slogan of Bank Plus? You willing to admit that? No, because you thought I was gonna make you stand up. All right. They say it's more than a name. It's a Oh, one person has heard them. Way to go marketing scheme for Bank Plus. That's awesome. Bank Plus says it's more than a name. It's a promise. All right. And that's the slogan of Bank Plus. And they said, here's how we're going to deliver. It's more than our name. It's our promise. And I think right here in the middle of the Christmas story, as God begins to unwrap the gift for us, he's saying, I'm not just laying out a name for this child. I'm making a promise for all of humanity, for all of history. You see, up to this point, only five other children in history had been named before their birth. Only five. Isaac, Ishmael, Moses, Solomon, and Josiah. Only five of them had received their name before their birth. John the Baptist would would make six pretty quickly after this. But none of those names carried the significance of this one name, Jesus. And during this time, kind of unlike today, Jesus was a pretty popular name. There's a lot of kids named Jesus. And so that's why we often in scripture see Jesus referred to as Jesus of Nazareth that separates him, that this is the promised one. But Jesus is actually the Greek form of the name Joshua, which means Yahweh or the Lord saves. And so this wasn't just a baby with a name, but this was a baby with a purpose, Psalm makes some kind of hints and foreshadows what's to come. Psalm 130 verse 8 speaks of the Messiah and it says, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Now, remember what we said last week, we started with this foundation that why do we need the gift? Why do we need the Messiah that's coming? Because we're a people in need of saving. And here in this moment, God's just pointing back to that again. And last week, if you remember, we said the Israelite people, they were waiting on a Messiah. Hundreds of years, they're sitting and waiting. They're like, he's coming, he's going to be here. But here's what they were hoping for. They just wanted someone to deliver them from the Roman rule and oppression that they were under. That's all they could think about. If we could have the Messiah that could do that, like, we're good. And we now know as we look at the story of Scripture that God was, he was preparing a much grander gift and he was sending a Messiah, a Savior, to save them from sin and death. And not only them, but it was for you and me. And God wasn't just giving a name, but he was giving a promise. And I think in the same way, man, the greatest tragedy of Christmas and the greatest tragedy of our lives as a whole is that we would only look to Jesus as a name. And I mean that by that we would only look at the baby in the manger the the baby of Christmas, and we would simply trust him to fix the surface-level needs of our lives. So often we come to Jesus looking for a quick fix for our broken marriage, our financial struggle, our difficulty with our job, our family issues. And can Jesus fix those areas? Can he speak hope into those areas of our life? Absolutely. He reigns sovereign over all. But I think for us to only trust Jesus to fix the surface-level needs of our life is the reality that we're not fully coming to God in faith. Our hope is still very much based on our situations. And if it goes our way, okay, God, if it doesn't, where are you? And also, it never allows us to fully appreciate and worship Jesus for who he is and the power that he holds and why he came in the first place, because God gifted us with Jesus because we were sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus didn't come to be a Band-Aid for the surface level issues of our life, but he came to be a cure for the incurable disease of our life, and that was sin that ran so much deeper. And the reality is, guys, we're not just mistakers in need of a life coach to help us out. But we're sinners in need of a savior to rescue us from ourselves. And in the news that the angel delivers to Mary, God was not just giving her a name for her coming baby, but he was giving her a message of hope, a promise that a Savior is coming. Like the Messiah, he's on the way. Buckle up. The Savior will be here. And he's not only just a Savior, he's a Savior for all people. And scripture points to that. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, the Savior's coming, the Messiah's here, and it offers salvation to who? all people. John three seventeen. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? Save the world through him. He was working to reconcile us back to him. Acts 5, 31. God exalted him, meaning Jesus, to his own right hand. And what is the titles he gave him? Prince and savior. That he might do what? that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. God wasn't just giving a name, but he was giving a promise. So as you step into Christmas 2016 this year, whether you're in a place like full of hope or you're in a place of hopelessness, man, may we we realize that as we look at the baby in the manger, God did not give that baby to just be a centerpiece for the story so that we could have something to talk about. But God gave Jesus to be the centerpiece of our lives so that we would have hope and joy and peace that can only be found in Him. And so God gives us two parts of the present. Second part is that God wasn't just giving a name, but He was making a promise. And then go back to our passage, Luke chapter 1, verse 32. The angel goes on about this baby, and this is how the angel describes him. It says, he will be great, and he's going to be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, And he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Here's the third part of the gift, if you're you're taking notes. It says that God was appointing an eternal ruler. God was appointing, he was giving an eternal ruler. The angel says, this baby will be great, and he will take on the throne of his father, David. Now, Jesus was called the son of God for a couple of primary reasons. One, he was conceived in a supernatural manner, all right? can't remember anybody else that came in that manner. All right, second, he would resurrect from the dead. He would come back from the dead defeating sin, and death. those things made him the son of God. But the angel goes on from there. Says not just the son of God, but he will be given the throne of David. If you remember last week in Matthew 1, we realized that Jesus came through the lineage of David. You want to see Jesus family tree, all right? ancestry.com for Jesus, Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. And it lists all the generations from the beginning to Jesus. And in that moment, it, we realized that Jesus came as the lineage of David. And this was the promise. Check this out. This is the promise given to David in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 16. Your house, talking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. Now, let's think for a second when God gives that promise to David, all right, an ordinary dude, just like us, what was David thinking? Like throne for, what are you talking about, God? Like how in the world is a, my throne, something that's a part of me? How's that going to last forever? You can, who's going to carry on the throne? I'm a temporary guy. And now, In this moment, God is not just giving Mary a baby, but now he's appointing a ruler for all of time. And God was fulfilling words. Check this out. Spoken hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment. And he's going, here they are. I told you it was going to happen. It's coming true right here. And in Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, we see more prophecy. And this is describes Jesus. It says of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, and he'll establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty is going to accomplish this. And through a lowly teenage virgin, God was appointing a leader whose throne would have no end. And as we think back about across the course of history, has anyone influenced history as much as Jesus? I'm thinking about time is based on Christ, right? B.C., before Christ, A.D., after Christ's death. Christmas is what? The celebration of not gift-giving. It's a celebration of Christ coming. Easter is what? The celebration of Christ's victory and Christ's sacrifice. And for every ruler in history who has ever ruled or will ever rule, their reign will see an end. But God in this moment is saying there will be no successor to my son. He will have a kingdom that will have no end. And even in Jesus' final words before he leaves earth in Matthew 28 to return to God the Father, he gives us kind of one little last reminder. Hey, remember who I am? Remember where I sit in the prominence of all things? Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came to them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. It's been given to me. And Jesus stands as the eternal ruler of heaven and earth with all prominence and all power and all authority. And as we uncover this part of the Christmas gift, if you will, and we think about like, what, is, what does that mean for us? How does, how does that work into me in, in December 2016 and Christmas? Come? Like we have to ask ourselves the question, like who are we personally choosing to sit on the throne and the reigning position of our life? I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but like between you and God, like who's reigning over the the everyday happenings of your life? I mean, are you are you allowing the truth of God's word, and then the worship response of, of your life, not just your song, and the leading of God's spirit daily in your work with your family, in your home? Like, is that what reigns over your life supremely? Or if you got really gut check level honest, like would you have to say, and i uh, really like the the desires and the passions that i have of this world the pursuit of more or my acceptance or my influence or man working up the life, like like that's really more of what controls me but scripture says there's only one ruler and only one kingdom that will have no end and there's only one ruler that gives us victory in life and in death and that promises the hope of eternity and joy that this world can't offer and his name is jesus And every single one of us have to ask ourselves daily that question, Man, who's sitting in the reigning throne of my life? So today we've seen a couple parts of the gift. God uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. And God was just not giving a name, but he was giving a promise. And we realized that God was was blessing, he was appointing an eternal ruler. He's like, man, I know you're going to worry about that election in November 2016. Like, you're going to stress out about that thing. But guess what? I'm not really stressing out about it. Because there's an eternal ruler who reigns over all things. But then I want us to see the the last part of the story. Verse 34, uh, I love Mary's response. And like all of you ladies would have responded the same way if you'd have got that message. Verse 34, like how this going to be? Come on now. (laughs) Like seriously, how will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, well, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. Verse 36. Hey, remember Elizabeth, even Elizabeth, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is unable to conceive, she's already in her sixth month. Verse 37. For no word from God will ever fail. And in these final words between the angel and Mary, Mary asked the logical question. I mean, how how will this be? And it's really important for us to acknowledge, like Mary doesn't ask this in a place of, of disbelief and unbelief. She asks this acknowledging like, man, what you've said to me is fully true. And if you keep reading there in Luke chapter one, you'll see like her response is like, I trust you. I'm the Lord's servant. Do with me what you want. And she responds, believing fully what the angel has said to her. And then I love that the angel responds to her question, like just logistically, how's this going to go down? And the angel gives her two responses that I want us to look at in just a second. But in the final verse of this passage, we just read verse 37, man, God kind of gives us the final piece of the gift and perhaps one of the most powerful verses and, and phrases in all of the scripture. And here's our final piece of the gift that through Jesus, God's promises are unfailing. Through Jesus, God's promises are unfailing. In this moment, I mean, let's let's be honest. Mary has been delivered the most earth shattering news of her life. Not only is she, as a virgin, pregnant in the most unexplainable way in history. No, God's the daddy. Mom, what are you talking? No, no, God's the daddy. It's all good. But she's also carrying the long awaited Savior of the world. Let's think about this. If there was ever a moment in all of history where a panic attack was okay to have, this was it. We wouldn't have been like Mary, what you doing? No, like Mary, we would have been there too. And Mary's thinking, this is what Mary's pondering. All right, let's be honest. As new parents today, what do we ponder? We ponder what color are we going to paint the nursery and how are we going to announce the baby on Instagram? Like we're stressing about that. Mary's carrying the savior of the world, the son of God in her womb. And as Mary's kind of processing this decision of whether I'm going to trust God and his plans for me or whether I'm rebelling against this crazy wild thing he's doing and I'm turning my back on God, she's pondering these two things. The angel gives her two pieces of information. First, he says, hey, you remember your cousin Elizabeth? You remember your relative Elizabeth? Man, you remember how long you've been praying for her? You remember how she couldn't have a baby? Like, she's going to do all the stuff. Like, guess what? She's in her sixth month already. You're the first one to know. And then he speaks the phrase in verse 37. The angel does, perhaps the most powerful phrase in all of Scripture. He says, no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. And in this single moment of the original Christmas, the Christmas, God was kind of revealing a part of his plan or a part of his gift, which is that through Jesus, because of Jesus, God's promises are unfailing. And I love that the angel gave Mary evidence and then affirmation. Evidence, then affirmation. What, it gave Mary the evidence, like, hey, you remember your relative remember you to Elizabeth? Like, you, you thought that thing was impossible, Here's the evidence. Like, God's at work. She's already six months. She knows whether it's a boy or a girl right now, right? Here's the evidence. And then the angel speaks a word of affirmation. Oh, yeah. And in light of that, remember, no word from God will ever fail. Evidence, then affirmation. Evidence, then affirmation. I don't know about you, but like, I'm I'm an evidence affirmation guy. Like, Before I make a big decision, I'm going to need some evidence before I invest myself in that decision, right? Like, before I trust you, all right, I need to know your motives and your emotions. I need to know that evidence before I'm going to firm you with my trust in that moment. Anybody like that in the room? All right. Man, I was thinking back this week to when my wife Heather and I started dating uh, back in college, at Mississippi College. And, uh, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'll be honest. Like, when we first started hanging out, I was pulling out all the stops, guys. Like, all the stops. I'm talking about I'm, you know, I'm opening all the doors. I'm walking her to class, like, and then running back across the campus, like, to my class. Don't act like you've never done that before. And, and we're going out for, like, gourmet dinners in the cafeteria. I'm talking about, like, babe, you can eat on my meal plan today. I was rolling out all, little notes, the whole deal, all right? And so for about a month, man, we've been hanging out, and we're not officially dating yet. Like, at that time, we were just talking. I don't even know what they call it today, but, like, that's what we were doing. And, and, and I was getting some evidence that, like, she was in. Like, like, she didn't tell me to leave. She didn't tell me to back off creep. Like, she, she kept hanging out with me in the cafeteria. Like, you know, we split a burger together. And, it, like, it was good. And I was getting this evidence that, that she was, like, she might have some feelings, too. And about a month after we've been hanging out, homecoming comes around, right? You're talking about sweaty palm moment, dude. Like, you got to ask this girl homecoming, okay? All right. And so, like, I had no doubt this is my girl. Like, this is the one I want to invite to be a part of that experience with me. But I didn't know how she was feeling. I didn't know if she was going to say yes. And so you got to know something about my wife. She's a big Lucille Ball fan. Like, she loves I Love Lucy. If the rerun's coming on, like, we're DV and r it. Like, i got to go to the bedroom to watch a football game because she's watching I Love Lucy. And so, like, one night we're, we're studying together, and she's got her notebook, and i got mine. And when she wasn't looking, like, I slide this little note in the middle of her notebook. Um, and, and then I just sit for what seemed like an eternity <laughs> waiting on her to get to that page. And so she finally gets there. And, like, she opens it up, and so what it was is it was like a screenshot, kind of a picture I'd printed off from the I Love Lucy show, and then, like, it had a little caption down at the bottom, something about, like, will you go to homecoming with me? It was a lot more poetic than that, but uh, it was (laughs) something along those lines. And so she reads it, and, like, I'm just waiting, like, sweaty palms, you know, and she looks up, and she smiles, and I'm like, oh, that's a good first sign, all we need is a Yes! And she was like, absolutely. And I'm like, "Yes, score, Brian. One for Brian. Man, I was fired up. I was excited. I put myself out there, right? Fellas, come on, you with me now. Don't act like you're too tough for that. You, I put myself out there. And she affirmed that, all right? But I'll be really honest with you. Had I not had the evidence of the whole month long that we've been hanging out before and she hadn't told me to back off, like I probably would not have sought the affirmation through the invitation, if you know what I'm talking about, all right? There was evidence and then there was affirmation. And here's where I'm headed with this. I've talked to so many people in the middle of this so-called journey of life, and for so many of us, we often question the affirmation of God because we've forgotten the evidence of God. I mean, we, we look at all of the things that God speaks to us through his word and we come in here and like we sing songs and God, you're great and greater you, Lord. and Man, all the earth's going to praise you and I'm right there with them. And, and like, man, we hear all this truth and we sense the leading of God's spirit. But when it comes down to affirming that with our response, we got all the evidence. When it comes to affirming that, when Monday hits and when the test report comes back, and when the spouse or the kid or whatever it is ain't the way that we thought it was going to be, all of a sudden we're saying, I don't, I don't know, God. I don't know if I can fully trust you. I don't, I don't know if you're a man of your word. And all of a sudden, we begin to doubt the original evidence of God, and we fail to affirm him with our response. But here in Matthew 1, the angel is not only in the announcing the birth of a baby, but the angel is announcing the guaranteed evidence that God is a God of unfailing promises through Jesus. And this is how Paul would kind of later explain it to the church at Corinth. Remember those unlikely people? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. This is the words that Paul writes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are, yes, in Christ so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, we affirm you. Yes, in Christ, we affirm you. Verse twenty-one. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, not apart on our own in Christ. And He anointed us, and He set His seal of ownership on us, and He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And Paul says, God has already given us the evidence in. Christ. God has made the evidence incredibly clear. And not only did God become God with us, but God became God for us. And it wasn't just about a baby, but it was about a Savior on a cross in a full display of the greatest love and the greatest mercy and the greatest grace that humanity will ever know of. And Scripture says, God has given us first-class, top-priority evidence in Jesus So now as we look back at what God has given us and we read his word and we feel the promptings of his spirit and we live in community with one another, now we can go, yes, I'm with you. You are trustworthy and you are faithful and yes, great are you, Lord. And I trust you with my life and I'll affirm you, amen, to that evidence and that proof of what you have given me. God was not just giving us a baby, but he was giving us a deposit and a guarantee that he is a faithful God of unfailing promises. So as you step into Christmas 2016 this year and all the hoopla that's going on is about to happen, you can stand confident that God often uses those unlikely places of your life, the place you didn't think you would be in, to accomplish his purposes in you should you choose to trust him. You can begin to realize that in Jesus, God wasn't just giving us a name and a little baby in the story. Oh, but he was making a promise to you, to you, that he's faithful, that Jesus stands as a ruler over eternity. And we got to choose to put him on the throne of our life daily in every situation. And finally, we can stand confident that through Jesus and because of Jesus, we have all of the evidence to trust God to be a God of unfailing promises. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.